0: This is Tanakhcast. Welcome back to Tanakhcast. This is episode 97. We'll begin with a brief summation of Isaiah chapters 28 through 31 and follow with a consideration of realpolitik, trust, and the machinations of Egyptian potentates. <laughs> Chapter 28 in the book of Isaiah follows the style and structure of previous chapters. We have stark divisions by topic, images of destruction and ruin, and artistic literary devices like alliteration and assonance. And this chapter has some serious alliterative flair. Check out verse 10, quote, Ki tzav le tzav tzav la tzav, kav la kav, kav la kav, zeir sham, zeir sham, which the JPS renders as, quote, that say mutter upon mutter, murmur upon murmur, now here, now there. These words repeat verbatim in verse 13. Chapter 28 uses literary devices we have not seen before in Isaiah. I guess you could call it call and response. Well, n- not exactly like that. Here, Yeshayahu quotes the words of his theological opponent for the purpose of debunking or mocking it. Kind of like how, for the children in Peanuts, all the adults sound like... With Charlie Brown, that jibber-jabber is poking fun in a loving way, but here, Yeshayahu does it with the people, and it's not so loving. In verses 9 through 11, he delivers his message seriously and then records the jabbering of the people in response, Tzav le tzav Kav le kav But then he does it again in verse 13. He recounts how he preaches truth to the people, but, quote, To them the word of the Lord is mutter upon mutter, murmur upon murmur, now here, now there. This call and response appears again two verses later when Yeshayahu gets into it again with the people, the, quote, men of mockery. They say in verse 15, quote, We have made a covenant with death, concluded a pact with Sheol. Really? The people said that? The same people who were muttering and murmuring not two verses before? Making a covenant with death? And the people go on in the same verse, quote, For we have made falsehood our refuge, taken shelter in treachery. This has to be Yeshayahu taking the piss. Come on. We've made falsehood our refuge? That's not as catchy as... lock her up that's right yes that's right but then yeshayahu calls back in verse 18 quote your covenant with death shall be annulled your pact with sheol shall not endure he is so wicked clever i also mentioned earlier that this chapter has some juicy images of ruin Ishayahu foretells the destruction of the kingdom of Ephraim, but he talks about it here in particularly artistic ways. Verse 1, quote, Ah, the proud crowns of the drunkards of Ephraim, whose glorious beauty is but wilted flowers on the heads of men bloated with rich food, who are overcome by wine. I'm referring to the motif of connecting drunkenness with pride, that the powerful are literally and figuratively drunk, and this will be their downfall. It helps a lot that Samaria, Ephraim's capital, is located in wine country, but that's happenstance. For Yeshayahu, drunkenness is an expression of pride, and pride is a cardinal human sin. Other prophets poke at drunkards, mostly mocking them for their foolishness or foolish attempts to use alcohol to escape reality. Not so for Yeshayahu, not at all. And with the prideful, it is not too hard to slip into idolatry a state of mind where the human sees himself or herself as above God and God's laws. According to Yeshayahu, the prideful are those who do not listen to the word of God and mock God's prophets. Someone who holds herself in this manner inevitably perverts justice and precipitates social breakdown. And being the pride is the ultimate human sin, the other nations, too, are corrupted by it as well. Assyria, Babylonia, Moab, the list goes on. Chapter 28 concludes with kind of a parable about the farmer and how the farmer works. Quote, does he who plows to sow plow all the time, breaking up and furrowing his land? When he has smoothed its surface, does he not rather broadcast black cumin and scatter cumin? He goes on to discuss wheat, barley, and emmer, all of which is to say that like the farmer who has many tasks, which have to be done in a specific order with the proper tools, so too God works with his people. When appropriate, God forgives. When God punishes, it can be severe or mild. For each task, the right time and the right tool. Boy, there's nothing like the feeling a rod and cold steel hanging on your hips. <laughs> My wife says when I put this bad boy on, I turn into wild, hairy, disgusting ape. Huh? You know what? I don't think women understand a feeling of rawhide and steel, vice grip and monkey pliers, dado head cut flat jig, mitre jig, box hot glue. Chapter 29 talks about Ariel, the city where David encamped, which most scholars identify as Jerusalem. And Yeshayahu has some strong words for the people of David's city. They will be pummeled mercilessly. But don't worry, those that do the pummeling will be pummeled themselves. Verse 8, quote, Like one who is hungry and dreams he is eating, but wakes to find himself empty. And like one who is thirsty and dreams he is drinking, but wakes to find himself faint and utterly parched, so shall be all the multitudes of nations that war upon Mount Zion. This end of days scenario, where everyone gangs up on Israel, wins for a little, and then loses big, repeats often in the prophets. It probably emerged from historical circumstances where many a nation did rise up against Jerusalem, and yet the city survived. Think of the failed attack of Sancheri the Assyrian in 701 BCE. This idea that Jerusalem was invulnerable, however, moved from the realm of the historic to the realm of the mythic. Because as we know, spoilers, Jerusalem was destroyed in 586 BCE by the armies of Nebuchadnezzar. But even when the city was destroyed, the belief of its invulnerability shifted from the actual city to an eschatological vision. Chapters 30 and 31 focus on Egypt and present prophecies that depart dramatically from previous discussions about Egypt in the book of Isaiah. Earlier mentions were divorced from any political reality. Chapters 30 and 31 are steeped in geopolitics. We're talking diplomatic overtures, relations, pacts, realpolitik, and whether an alliance with Egypt against Assyria is a good idea. Yeshayahu says no. Yirmiyahu says the same 150 years later, but where Yirmiyahu counsels submission to Babylon instead of launching a revolt that will surely fail. Yeshayahu does not tell Yehuda to submit to Assyria, just the opposite. Jerusalem will not fall to Assyria. Assyria will fall, and Egypt should not be part of that divine chain of events. God raises up and God brings low, not an alliance with Egypt. An alliance with Egypt is a slap in the face to God, a statement of lack of faith, an act of pride, an act of hubris which is why Yeshayahu portrays Egypt as, quote, vain and empty. So let it be written. So let it be done. Yeshayahu's is a politics of theology, but there is also some realpolitik there too. Egypt is not as powerful as they think they are, so allying with them is a mistake. So chapters 30 and 31 follow the same format. After Yeshayahu lays into the people for their faithlessness and their foolish attempts to forge a pact with Egypt, he lays out how long it's gonna play out. The Assyrians will rise up, and God will strike them down. Okay. Do you want to play with us? Okay. No. Say hello to my Thus endeth the summation and beginneth the consideration. In Yeshayahu's political landscape, Egypt looms large. With the ascent of Assyria in the 8th century BCE, the Egyptian kings looked to Israel and Judah to serve as buffer states between them and that ominous rising force in the east. It was important for Egyptian interests that Israel and Judah remain independent and strong. The Assyrian threat was most palpable in 734 BCE when the Assyrians conquered Gaza, and Gaza's king sought refuge in Egypt, and the Egyptians, out of fear of reprisal, sent him back to meet his fate at the mercy of Tiglath Pileser III. But when the kingdoms of the land of Israel, including Gaza, Israel, Judah, and even Syria, revolted after the death of Shalmaneser V around 722 BCE, the Egyptians sent forces to support the uprising in Gaza. That revolt failed. When Ashdod rose up in revolt in 712 BCE, the Egyptian king ruling from the Nile Delta did not send aid. The Nubians further south stayed out of the conflict as well. Only when the Nubians took over Egypt did the policy shift. When in 701 BCE, Khizkiyahu and his allies declared that they would serve Assyria no longer, the Nubians supported him. When Sancheriv came to suppress Judah, Taharqa, which two kings identifies as the king of Cush, rallied to support Chizkiyahu. His forces were ultimately repelled. And so we find Yeshayahu here in chapter 30 railing against Egypt. Quote, the refuge with Pharaoh shall result in your shame, the shelter under Egypt's protection in your chagrin. Though his officers are present in Zoan and his messengers reach as far as the Hanis, they all shall come to shame because of a people that does not avail them that is of no help or avail, but brings only chagrin and disgrace." Oh damn! As I said earlier, Yirmiyahu said the same thing about Egypt. It's better to be a vassal to Babylon than depend on them. They will sell you out. Don't trust them. And if you project forward into the 20th century, the message would have been the same. Egypt's strongman, Gamal Abdel Nasser, was regarded as an annoyance by the West for his desire to chart a neutral course for the Arab world during the Cold War. But when he changed his mind in 1955 and struck an arms deal with the Soviet bloc, he became a target of American mischief, even though most folks in the CIA saw Nasser's move as trying to have it both ways to keep U.S. relations in neutral while shifting Soviet relations into first. U.S. President Eisenhower directed the State Department to see if they could prop up the Saudis as a counterweight to Egypt. When Nasser nationalized the Suez Canal in July 1956, Eisenhower said that Nasser's rhetoric, quote, seemed much like Hitler's. John Foster Dulles, Eisenhower's Secretary of State, described Nasser as, quote, an extremely dangerous fanatic possessing a, quote, Hitlerite personality. But despite the machinations, Nasser survived the 1956 Suez Crisis relatively intact and managed to stay in power even after Israel handed him his ass in 1967, destroying practically his whole air force in about an hour or so and taking the sinai and gaza from him in six days and when nasser died in september of 1970 pretty much everyone in the egyptian regime as well as analysts in the state department and the kremlin expected that Nasser's vice president, Anwar Sadat, would go on and get along with Nasser's policies. That is, he would continue to be openly antagonistic to Israel, try and grab the Sinai and Egypt's pride back from the Zionist entity, and continue to keep Egypt firmly in the Soviet camp. But Sadat had different ideas. Even though Egypt had been a participant in the September 1967 Khartoum Arab Summit, that produced the famous three no's, no peace, no recognition, and no negotiation with Israel, he thought he might be able to achieve Egypt's goals without war, and perhaps with peace, and perhaps move Egypt into the good graces of the West, if it meant Western aid money to offset Egypt's near comatose economy. And so Sadat began to intimate that he would be open to back-channel negotiations with Israel via the United States, If Israel would forego the Sinai, Egypt would recognize Israel as an independent state. Golda Meir, Israel's prime minister, received U.S. Assistant Secretary of State Joseph Sisko with Sadat's overtures and some flowers, but she wanted direct negotiations. So in a word, she said, Talk to the hand. Now, Sadat could not let the status quo stand. The Israelis, after all, were sitting less than 100 kilometers from Cairo. He had tried peace, and so began plans for war. Operation 41 would involve an offensive along the entire Suez Canal with the goal of penetrating Israeli lines and seizing the key passes in the Sinai about 50 kilometers away. The Soviets were in on the planning since the beginning in July of 1971. Three months later, the Egyptians signed the largest arms deal yet with the Soviets. It's time to lock and load! Oh, and uh, Operation 41 was renamed Granite 2. Man, I'd love to be in that army unit that comes up with all these awesome names for operations. Anyway... There was a second plan though, codename High Minarets. This plan only had a crossing of the Suez Canal at five key spots and an advance of Egyptian troops between 10 and 15 kilometers into the Sinai before the advance would stop and hunker down under the umbrella of Egypt's surface to air missile defense systems. High Minarets had a twofold goal. It would bloody the nose of the Israelis for sure, demonstrating that Egypt's army had operational effectiveness while restoring Egypt's pride. However, it could also bring the canal zone back under Egyptian control. Egypt would thus be able to reopen the canal for shipping and much-needed revenue. But Sadat would not tell his Syrian counterpart, President Hafez al-Assad, about this. Instead, when they planned the joint attack on Israel, When six Syrian commanders arrive in Alexandria on August 21, 1973, dressed as tourists with fake passports to plan the Egyptian attack and the Syrian attack, they were told that Egypt was ready for all-out war, that is, Operation Granite 2. All that remained was to pick a date. Would it be September 7th or October 5th? The date would be chosen by Sadat and Assad and communicated to the commanders 15 days before the attack but when August 27th came and went without a word, it was understood that the attack would happen on October 5th. When Sadat met with Assad in Damascus on August 28th, it was decided that October 6th would be the day. The speed of the water current and the tide in the Suez Canal were optimal for a crossing operation. Also, for most of the night there was a full moon, and it would also be Yom Kippur. Jews would be fasting, but more importantly, they would be largely demobilized. October also coincided with Ramadan, and besides fasting, Muslims would remember that during Ramadan, the Muslims won their first victory in 634 CE at the Battle of Badr, so Egyptian commanders renamed the operation Operation Badr. On September 10th, Sadat and Assad meet with King Hussein of Jordan and raise the prospect of war with Israel to suss out whether the Jordanians would be interested. Jordan is not interested. After being dragged into the fight in 1967 and losing the West Bank in East Jerusalem, Jordan had learned her lesson. But Hussein learned another important lesson, one that would be immortalized in the words of Michael Corleone in Godfather II, which was released actually in 1974. My father taught me many things here. He taught me in this room. He taught me, keep your friends close, but your enemies closer. So King Hussein gets into a helicopter, because he was a trained pilot, and secretly flies himself to Tel Aviv to warn Israeli Prime Minister Golda Meir of an impending Syrian attack. Are they going to war without the Egyptians, Golda asks? The king says he doesn't think so. I think they would cooperate. But this warning is ignored. Throughout September, Israel receives 11 warnings of war from well-placed sources and ignores them all. Now, I don't mean to Monday morning quarterback or whatever or breaking the fast metaphor you might toss in here. That's not the point. The point is that even though the Israelis knew but didn't know about an impending attack, Egypt was working with their own plan. Everyone, the Soviets, the Syrians, everyone thought they were pursuing granite too. But they were still all about the high minarets. And once a narrow strip of land about 12 kilometers wide on the eastern bank of the, of the canal had been secured the Egyptians cease their advance, and the Syrians were like, You can't be serious, man. You cannot be serious! Stop. Syrian President Assad calls Sadat, This is not what we agreed. When Sadat doesn't give him a straight answer, Assad calls Soviet Prime Minister Kosygin. Now you're all in big, big trouble. Kosygin calls Sadat, Hey, why aren't your guys taking the whole Sinai? Sadat hems and haws and finally gives in to his benefactor. He orders his troops to advance. His chief of staff, Marshal Sa'ad el shazli was beside himself. He knew what would happen next. And within two hours, the tide of the war changes. Israel cuts a hole in the Egyptian lines. They would push across the canal, swing south, and surround the Egyptian 3rd Army. Now Egypt is truly screwed. There is nothing keeping Israel from advancing onto Cairo. Less than 24 hours after Israel crosses the canal... Leonid Brezhnev, the premier of the Soviet Union, invites the Americans to come to Moscow to negotiate an end to the fighting as soon as possible. Secretary of State Kissinger gets on a plane. The Americans want to stall because the longer Israel has to fight, the more they will win. This is exactly what the Russians are worried about. Brezhnev conducts the negotiations himself. Kissinger says the fighting will stop if the Arabs recognize Israel's right to exist. Brezhnev says there should be direct negotiations. Kissinger realizes he can stall no longer. He agrees to terms for a ceasefire. In the meanwhile, the Israelis have Egypt by the short hairs. On October 28, 1973, Israeli generals meet with their Egyptian counterparts to disentangle their forces. This is the first direct official contact between Israel and Egypt in 25 years. It would eventually lead to this. Dear President Carter, in this historic moment, I would like to express to you my heartfelt congratulations and appreciation. For long days and nights, you devoted your time and energy to the pursuit of peace. You have been most courageous when you took the gigantic step of convening this meeting. The challenge challenge was great. And the risks were high. And despite two Israeli invasions of Lebanon, two intifadas, the assassination of Sadat himself, and a coup and a counter-coup in Egypt, the peace treaty that Sadat, Begin, and Carter signed has held fast. So I guess perhaps almost after 40 years, we might be able to trust Egypt. Well, maybe just a little. If you like what you heard today, spread the word about cast. Send a friend an email to say, Hey, you should check out TanakhCast. Or like TanakhCast at the show pages on Facebook or Google+. Plus, or write a brief review at the iTunes Store, Google Play, Stitcher Smart Radio, or SoundCloud. It's a small thing, really, but it will help other people find TanakhCast. Or if you want to help in a bigger way, support us at Patreon. Just search for TanakhCast and pledge your shekels either on a one-time or monthly basis, and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that, and I encourage you to join us again in two weeks for... Episode 98, when we continue in the book of Isaiah with chapters 32-35. to 35.